If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today it's a short passage. We'll be reading from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and that it has stood the test of time. We thank you that we have access to your word. God, we pray that you will speak to and through Ryan this morning. Open our our minds, our ears, and our hearts to receive your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Good morning. You guys can be seated. Um, How we doing? In some ways, I could just put the benediction on us now, right? I mean, let's just go. God's already been here. Amen. It's good. It's good. Good God's here. He's going to be here through his word. He's going to continue to be here through his word as we continue looking uh, through the book of Romans today. And these two verses that I'm going to share with you um, are, are full of rich theology, rich meaning for what it looks like to live as Christians. Um, <clears throat> we all have instincts in life. Can you think of some of your natural responses to life situations? Some of you hear a joke, like a joke that I might tell on a Sunday morning, and you laugh because it's funny, right? It's an instinct. Others of us, that was funny, trying to get a little laugh. It's all right, it's all right. Some of you, or all of us, uh, cry whenever we experience pain. Some of us cry a little more than others, right? Or some of you scream when someone scares you. I was uh, playing hide-and-go-seek with the kids recently, and the big kids, they know how to provoke me, okay? Uh, the older three. And so here's, what they, here's how they provoke me. They say, Dad, you're going too easy on us, which in turn just ratchets up the intensity uh, of whatever we're doing. It doesn't matter what it is. So uh, we're playing hide-and-go-seek, and I said, okay, fine. It's going too easy. Let's turn the lights out, okay? So I turned the lights out, and we played, and that satisfied them for, I don't know, six minutes. And then... Uh, then they were bored with me again, and so I did what any dad would do. I secretly went downstairs to the costume bin, and I was going to grab something kind of benign like a Darth Vader mask or something like that, but then, uh, you know, my inner dad kind of kicked in, and I, I grabbed the scariest mask I could find, which was some like scream mask. I don't even know where we got it. Please tell me we didn't buy that, but anyway, it was in the house. And I put that bad boy on, and I went upstairs, and I was looking for those big kids. You know the first person I saw? Maggie. And she cried, bloody murder, right? And I was like, no, no, no. This is, this is going to be a bad nightmare. She's going to need counseling. What did I do? And, uh, and the only thing that would satisfy her little soul was for me to put the mask on her, and then her to scare her siblings, Right? which is great. So it all turned out good. I say that because we all have instincts in life. We have natural responses to circumstances and situations. And so today, what we are going for in Romans chapter 12 is an instinctive worship of God, something that's automatic for us as his people. That's what we're going for, that we would be naturally motivated to worship Jesus with not just our Sunday mornings, but with all of our lives. 
Christian life is that we, by God's grace, have a more and more natural, instinctual response to believe and behave according to the gospel. And that is what worship is, church. So why does this really matter? Because we believe that worship is the only thing that can actually change your life. Let me say that again. Why does what we do in here matter? Because we believe that worship is the only thing that can actually change your life. But here's the deal. Doing the right thing with the wrong motive will never change your life. The goal of preaching, the goal of what I'm trying to do here today is is to lead you to worship the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, with all that you are. And, and, And we want living out of the gospel to be as instinctive as screaming when your dad scares you, okay? We want it to be that rich for you, that automatic for you. Here's what Tim Keller says about kind of what I'm talking about in Romans 12. He says, the gospel doesn't change us in a mechanical way. To give the gospel primacy in our lives is not always to logically infer a series of principles from it and then apply it to our lives, right? Recently, I heard a a sociologist say that, for the most part, the frameworks of meaning by which we navigate our daily lives are so deeply embedded in us that they operate pre-reflectively, automatic, instinctually. They don't exist only as a list of propositions and formulations, but also as themes, motives, attitudes, and values that are effective and emotional as they are uh, cognitive and intellectual. When we listen to the gospel preached or meditated on it in the scripture, we are driving it so deeply into our hearts, our imaginations, and our thinking that we begin to live out the gospel instinctively. That's what we're going for. That's the reason why Paul has spent two-thirds of the book of Romans telling us what the gospel is, so that we can then spend the last third of Romans, where we're headed now, on how we live out the gospel in community. That's what the rest of Romans is about. But so much of American evangelical culture is just tell me what to do, pastor. The problem is you'll do it with the wrong motives. And it will never change your life. And our heart for you is that your life would be changed because you've had an encounter with God. So Romans 12, 1, 2 takes a turn for us to address what should motivate us to live godly lives. It turns to take us from the theoretical to the practical, from the theological to the ethical, from the indicative, what God has done for us, to the imperative, what we live out in light of that. And it has everything to do with motive. So what is your motive for living as a follower of Jesus Christ today? What is it? Many Christians, because of a lopsided view of grace, still carry within them this instinctive belief that grace is almost like this cheap payday loan that we must, that must be repaid through obedience. That's what we want to go away from because that will never change your life if you think that you're actually paying down your loan. That's not what it means to obey God. Jesus has finished that. He's already paid it off. Our Father in heaven has given us much more of a rich and pure motivation for becoming like him. And it comes from his very own heart. And the book of Romans says that it's, it, it can be encapsulated in one word, mercy. So, so what is God's mercy? If, if I were to define God's mercy and what it looks like to apply it to our lives, here's what I would say today. 
God's mercy is his never-ending compassion. He's drawn toward you. He's drawn toward me. There's something within him that comes toward us when everybody else wants to run away from us. It's his never-ending compassion and his forgiveness that keeps him close to us toward undeserving sinners that's received by faith because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. That's what it looks like to live in God's mercy. And this is what Paul is appealing to the Roman church for. He's appealing to them in light of God's mercy. He's appealing to them in light of what God has done for us. And it gives us a whole different motivation for obedience when we realize God has never for one day given us what we deserve. And that's what his mercy is. So here's our big idea for today as we dig into the text. God's mercy changes why we do what we do as disciples. It changes the why, even though the what may remain the same. And, that, cha- and, that's, and that, that difference is the difference in your life actually changing and you leaving as the same person this morning. So what we're asking for is God to deepen our motivation, to be motivated by the mercy that he's given us in Jesus. So really simple today, two points. Uh, we present our bodies to God because of his mercy, and we present our minds to God because of his mercy. So let's dig into that first part, Romans 12. One, let me remind you of what Romans 12, 1 says. I appeal to you. He's making an appeal. He's making an endearing approach uh, to these Christians. Therefore, and that therefore is a big therefore, right? Sometimes therefores are small therefores. This is a big one. This is 11 chapters of therefore, okay? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, everything that I've said, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice that's holy and it's acceptable to God, which is your worship. So in order for this truth to have maximum impact in our lives this morning, we are forced to take inventory of our own lives. What drives our behavior and obedience in the kingdom this morning? By default, friends, it will not be God's mercy because it takes humility to believe that you need God's mercy, right? Um, the, Alistair Begg says it like this. He says, the truth is, because we've got to ask ourselves, what story are we obeying out of or trying to obey out of? What do we really believe about God? What do we really believe about ourselves? Alistair Begg says it like this. He says, the truth is, is we're not really good people who make mistakes. That's not the story that you're living out of because if you were just a good person who made a mistake, you could pay that loan off, right? That's not the story for humanity. The story is we are sinful people in need of mercy. And unless you believe that, you will not be humble enough to accept the mercy of God, which will motivate your life to actually change, to actually be transformed. That's the big, stunning, humbling story of Romans 1 through 11. And we feel small, and we feel in desperate need of God's mercy when we're actually in a good place with our Father in heaven. It's good to feel small. But, but pride and fear will be driving our obedience if humility is not. Humility, meaning that we sense that we desperately need God's mercy and his grace in our lives, drives our obedience when it's connected to mercy. Let me remind you of this. Here's how Romans 11 kind of closes out here. Well, there's a few verses after it that are really significant too. But I want you to look for the word mercy here, okay? Look for it. For just as you, he's talking about the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience. 
So they, the Jews, too, now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, you've all been disobedient and you all need mercy and that's just the way that God set it up because Jesus is the one that gives it to us, right? So if you're in here this morning and you're trying to pay off a loan with your obedience, you need to understand that you're never gonna change. But I have good news for you. It's like Keller said, you know, you're way worse than you think you are. That's good news in this place, right? Because we need mercy and that's the thing that will change us. And so God doesn't leave us in this theoretical truth. He connects it to our whole life and he appeals to us by his mercy because God is after our worship. He's after our affections. But we have a little work to do connecting uh, worship and sacrifice, right? So we're, 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 um, we're drawn by mercy, we're motivated by mercy to live a life of worship. But we need to connect worship and sacrifice um, because it's not so naturally connected for us in this day and age like it has been historically. Um, when you think of acceptable worship, the first thing that we think of uh, is probably a worship service and music in that worship service to be exact which to be honest is a really thin view of what worship is. It's part of it, sure, it's great, um, but that's not all of what worship is. So to really worship, to offer acceptable worship means Dwayne and the team had the music on point and you really got in the zone that day, right? That's how you would describe acceptable worship to God. I mean, you were so tempted that your hands came out of your pockets and you thought about raising them up, <laughs> right? That's what we're wired to think about in this day and age, about what acceptable worship is. But it's a way bigger view in the scriptures. Acceptable worship in the Bible is always connected to an acceptable sacrifice. That's what makes the worship acceptable. Think about Cain and Abel, right? It was all about the motive with Cain and Abel. It, which an acceptable sacrifice for sinful humans is always a substitutionary sacrifice because that's the only way that we get to live in light of sin. In other words, our lives are the sacrifice because God cannot stand in the presence of sin. Some, think about this. To offer acceptable worship to God, something or, someone, uh, so, something or someone else must die for your worship to be acceptable. Think about that. Blood must be shed for your worship to be acceptable to God. And why? Because sin has separated us from God forever, and his wrath against sin and sinners must be satisfied. If not, your worship, it might be a lot of things, but it's not acceptable to God. The basis of the gospel is that God's wrath has to be satisfied so that we can be in relationship with him. If God's wrath doesn't exist, you don't need the gospel. It's a hard truth to say, but we need the gospel because God's wrath stands against sin. So if that's the basis of what it means to receive this mercy through a substitutionary sacrifice in Jesus, um, the, the, whole, the whole motivation for God is love, right? But he has to handle our sacrifice problem. If we could just try harder to do better and that be enough, we don't need Jesus, Many people just want the fruit of transformation without the gospel. And church, we want the gospel to change you, not your own motivation. And why? Because it will be eternal life change. You will change forever 
if it's driven by mercy. Listen to what Hebrews 9 says about sacrifice and worship. It's helpful for us um, as we kind of need to be, uh, uh, we, we need to grow in our Old, Old Testament theology of worship so that Jesus can be more for us. We, we need to see all that he has for us. So in Hebrews, I'm going to share a few verses from Hebrews 9 and 10 here. Uh, starting in 9.22, he says, Indeed, under the law, as opposed to being under grace, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me read that again. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's talking about Old Testament sacrificial system. But juxtaposed to that, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until now his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Let me read that one more time. For by a single offering, he has perfected, he has made you acceptable for all time those who are being sanctified, which is where you're at if you're a follower of Jesus in here. So the beauty of Romans 12 is this. Because worship is always connected to sacrifice, and the final sacrifice of sins was made by Jesus' innocent blood instead of an animal who took it away for a little bit or instead of yourself, our worship is acceptable to God based on faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus is the only high priest to ever sit down, okay? I I don't want to make, I I want you to see that. And he's the only high priest to ever sit down in his service to God. There are no seats for the priest in the temple or the tabernacle. And why? Because constant intercession and sacrifice for God's people had to be administered. But Jesus is the last, and he's the great high priest. And now the Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God. And why, church? Because it's finished. It's it's paid in full. There's no longer any sacrifice left for sins because Jesus has settled your account with God forever. So Romans 12 connects us here by saying that we now have become the royal priesthood. We don't need a priest to intercede for us because Jesus is interceding for us. And now our lives, as as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, is that we are the priesthood of all believers. We don't have to come to a priest because we are the priesthood of all believers. And every moment in this life is an opportunity to offer sacrifice to God. We are the ones to present an offering to God in response to his mercy Not to gain mercy, but because of it. Now, our offering is based on a sacrifice that exists exists from God forever. The sacrifice of his very own son's innocent blood. And in Jesus, the offering of your life by faith will always be pleasing to God. Because it's finished. You'll never have to fear a Cain response when you try to offer an Abel offering. It's finished. And that's beautiful news for us because the Old Testament sacrificial system was about someone or something else dying so that you could live. But now because Jesus not only has died but also lives, we have become the most peculiar thing of all, living sacrifices. That's what your life is. You are a living sacrifice, freely offering yourself to God 
freely offering yourself up on the altar to be used in this world at his disposal because there will never, ever, ever be any shadow of death that could ever separate you or condemn you from his presence ever again, church. That's the invitation, is that we get to offer ourselves, not being driven by pride, trying to prove ourselves to God, or by fear of what God's going to do to us because it's finished. You are acceptable, and you will never not be acceptable because Jesus has died and he's risen. In short, because of the gospel, the way of death has become the way of life for Christians. Listen to what Galatians chapter 2 says. Paul's thinking about the gospel, how good it is, how pure it is, and he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I love this because God demonstrates his love and his mercy through his people. You are the conduit for the world to see the mercy of God. Our willingness to obey, to die to our own selves, to repent, to walk humbly with God, to be, dare I say, wrong about something, is all pointing to Jesus. Your humility in light of his mercy is a billboard sign to the world that the gospel is true. So this new reality for disciples is this, is that we're priests who offer ourselves to God even though every animal offered had their blood spilled and they were lifeless when they were offered, we are the ones, because of the gospel, that crawl on the altar ourselves and present ourselves to God to be used for the advancement of his kingdom. But the problem with the living sacrifice is what? It keeps crawling off the altar, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, right? We keep crawling off the altar because we're being sanctified, right? Right? So, so just to apply this point here for a second, what does it mean for you right now to stay on the altar and offer your body as a living sacrifice in light of God's mercy? What, what does that personally mean for you? What does that corporately mean as a church for us to stay on the altar together? In, in Western culture, you know, I, I, I want to mention just quickly the, the, the word body, right, soma uh, in the Greek. Uh, in Western culture, we are so obsessed with the physical, we, we are so, just go to any gym, okay? We are so obsessed with the physical. Open any magazine, watch any show. We are obsessed with physical appearance and physical bodies. And we have trouble even locating the spiritual because we are so obsessed with the physical. Now, this was actually the exact opposite in Roman culture. In Greek culture, Gnosticism was really big at the time, which basically said that the physical and the spiritual were separate things and only the spiritual mattered. It couldn't be more opposite now, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to offer our bodies in light of this? For us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, it might mean that we have to surrender to these idols of Western culture. You know, the hyper-physical focus of all things, personal appearance, personal possession, personal success, personal performance, all of those things. And I want you to think for a second of how pervasive the worship of the physical self is in this world. It is so pervasive that you can't even separate yourself from it, right? It's the water that we swim in. And guys, I don't know about you, but the battle against it is so exhausting, isn't it? John Piper said this about the, uh, about the, the theme that I'm talking about here. He says, the offering of our bodies is not primarily the offering of our bodily looks. 
but our bodily behavior. In the, body, in, in the Bible, the body is not significant because of the way it looks. Let me stop right there. In the Bible, the body is not significant because of the way that it looks. That is a worldly reality, right? What did, what, uh, what did the scriptures say about David? He was a man after God's own heart. We're not called to look at outward appearance. We're called to look at the, the heart. The body is not significant because of the way it looks in the Bible, because of the way that it acts. The body is given to us to make visible the beauty of Christ. And collectively, what does Jesus call us? The body of Christ, right? It's not significant because of the way that it looks, but because of the way it behaves, because of the way that it acts. Your actions are the conduit to which God's mercy is to be known to the world. And what God wants to do through our lives is to make us models of mercy to a merciless world. He desires us to be his conduits of grace in this ruthless world that we live in. And our call is to make visible the invisible attributes of God through the way that we live our lives. And this requires that we stay on the altar of God because of, the, because of faith that it's finished and that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven interceding for us. We, just like those high priests, are offering ourselves up day in, day out to be living sacrifices wherever the Lord may send us. So I want you to personalize it for yourself today. I'm just gonna ask you a few questions. One of them's gonna hit you harder than the others, I bet. How can I offer myself to my family as a living sacrifice this week? God, how would you call me to offer myself in my work this week as a living sacrifice? God, how might I fight against sin and temptation if I knew that it was finished as a living sacrifice that stayed on the altar? How can I offer myself in suffering as a living sacrifice this week toward your glory, Father? How can I make all that I am point to all of who you are because of his great mercy, Father? I want you to apply that this week. Write that question down. Take it home. Ask yourself what it means for you in this season of your life with this set of circumstances to be a living sacrifice that stays on the altar. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. He says we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, and, and this is our spiritual act of worship because of God's mercy. But he also connects our minds to our bodies. Super helpful for us, right? He says we present our bodies, but we also present our minds because of his mercy. And why do we do that? so that we may know the will of God and live out the will of God with our lives. Our minds are entangled with the world because our actions are entangled with the world. And because of mercy, we're all on a trajectory of disentanglement with the world. Romans 12, 2, let me read it for you real quick. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So God's mercy puts us on a different trajectory. And that trajectory is a renewal of the mind. That's another way to describe the sanctification process. We're really concerned with the physical because we're Westerners, right? And we, we, we can't help the context that we're in. But we must consider the intellectual, what God wants to do with your mind. Because what your mind thinks is what your body does. I don't know if you know that or not, right? 
And so it's a battle of the mind. And so because God is saving all the, of who we are, he's renewing our mind after the image of his son. He's changing even the way that we think about ourselves and others in light of what his word says to us in order that we may uh, be able to live with wisdom in this world. This passage doesn't say wisdom, but these are wisdom categories. And, and in the Bible, there's entire books of wisdom literature, right? They're the, they're the, they're the places of the scripture that, that, frankly, we don't read very much, right? And we wonder why we don't have wisdom. Um, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What we want is a list of do's and don'ts. What God wants to give us is a person of Jesus so that we can walk with wisdom in this world. This is, so the renewal of the mind leads that we're able to discern what God's will is in a situation, what's good, what's acceptable, what's perfect, what Jesus would do if he was in the situation. I, lo- I love what uh, John MacArthur says here. He says, uh, justification costs you nothing, but sanctification will cost you everything. Think about that for a second. It's not about doing better and trying harder. It's about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, like Philippians 2 says. And that work applies not to your behaviors only, but also to your mind. So kind of two subpoints here. First one's this, a life not driven by his mercy will conform to the world. It's just going to happen. Um, so the reality of life in this world is that there is a constant conformity to worldly patterns that is squeezing us all into a mold. I mean, think about whether you're, you're patting out a hamburger and you've got a mold or, or whether you're making a cookie and you've got a mold. The world is squeezing us into its own mold. The power of the gospel is giving us another way to live. But God loves us so much that he includes us in this process. And it wouldn't take me long to describe some situations for you to, to, to acknowledge that you feel the squeeze of the world, right? Don't we feel it? We feel it all in our own unique ways. You know, uh, to, to have the right answers, to focus more on the material than the spiritual qualities of life. The focus to think in the, the immediate and temporal rather than the eternal. The pattern of this world is a pattern that is opposed to the way of mercy in the person of Jesus. So what is our response? I mean, we know we're not supposed to just be like a chameleon in the world that constantly adapts and changes to our environments. We know better than that. We know we're not called to do that. Rather, we're called to live out of the conviction and cherish what God cherishes. So Paul's saying that the pursuit of the Christian life is ultimately a pursuit of wisdom. And the way that we gain wisdom is that our minds are renewed because of the mercy of God and then how we see ourselves and enter into situations. Um, The renewal of the mind leads to an ability to access wisdom in life that leads to discernment, which ultimately changes how you live. Many people just want this list of do's and don'ts that that I mentioned earlier, but you can have that list and attempt to obey it and never have Jesus. That's the danger of religion, right? Wisdom comes from being transformed by the person and the work of Jesus on a personal level. And God wants to renew our mind in such a way that we test what's before us to discern if it's actually the will of God to take part in and if it actually pleases him. And I think one of the first things that we've got to address, and I can't spend a lot of time on this, but one of the first things that the church must be willing to address today is to call out worldly wisdom when we see it. I think there's been a fear in the church of calling out worldly wisdom for what it is. 
And I think it's because we've seen people do it in trite and hypocritical ways, boycott this and boycott that. Let's just, let's just say no to everybody. But we know that Jesus is said to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we, we live with this tension, but we've overcorrected as, as the church in general, at least in our context, and we've been afraid to call out worldly wisdom when we see it. Now, the categories in the Old Testament and the book of James are helpful in this. And I think we've shied away from this, but God may be calling us to be a little bit more uh, just precise with how we think about worldly wisdom. And the reason? We must not be too quick to consecrate what God condemns. And I, I think sometimes we just, let me say it again. We must not be too quick to consecrate, make holy, what is actually condemning to God. Now, there are elements of things that we just accept at face value as Christians that are absolutely heinous to God. And what are the ways in which we are currently being drawn into the current conformity of the world? What is it for us? Let me just read James 3, just to kind of give you a little bit of handle to grab onto how to discern worldly wisdom. James 3 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That, this is not about works-based salvation. I think we've, we've, we've pulled that lever too much. Um, we're known by our fruits is what Jesus said, right? He says, so if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, I mean, these are things that exist in all of us, right? If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts, he says, do not, be, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But it's earthly it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. So hold on a second. You said if I had jealousy, you know, bitter jealousy, and selfish, and like I, I got self, that's demonic? That's the presence of the devil in this world coming through my life? Yeah, that's what he's saying here. It's pretty intense. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile press, because it's the motive. These are motive motivations that he's going after. He says, but the wisdom that's from above, it's way different. It's, it's pure. It has this pure motive to please God behind it. Then it's, it's peaceable and it's gentle. These are fruits of the, the Spirit. It's, it's open to reason. It's not always right. It's full of mercy. There's our word for today. It's full of good fruits. It's impartial and it's, it's sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what are some of the elements of that worldly pose? And this isn't, a, this isn't an exhaustive list, but he says a couple of things that probably are really pervasive in our culture and maybe even our lives. Jealousy and selfish ambition. But wisdom from above is way different. Now, it's just a starting list to kind of get your mind thinking about the things that maybe in your own heart personally that you just kind of live with that are full of the world. And you wonder why your life isn't changing. And we leave our hearts full of the world. Church, I think sometimes we've just got to call it what it is. We've got to call a spade a spade. Sorry, I used to live in Vegas. Um, we've got to call it what it is and, and denounce what God denounces, what's heinous to him. Christian, what is it in your life right now that is just full of worldliness that just needs to be acknowledged? There are some things in life that we just need to be able to identify as worldly and seek to disentangle ourselves from them so that the mercy of God can swell in our heart and the fruit of the Spirit can grow out from us. 
I think in general we have too low a view of the impact of worldliness on our walk. It's not a matter of just being strong enough to not be tempted in a situation. It's a matter of just desiring to please God with things like what we watch, with things like what we say to other people, whether they're in front of us or not in front of us, with things that we choose to be associated with. What is it that draws out jealousy and selfishness in your heart? Just start there if you're having trouble. What is it that you'd be ashamed of other brothers and sisters in Christ knowing that you're involved in? Those are the places that we're entangled with worldliness. Those are the places that the Holy Spirit disentangles us from so that the pure light of the gospel can flow through who we are. Colossians 3, I'll read what Megan read earlier, just a couple verses. He says, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And what's that mean for us? That until Jesus returns, we are living sacrifices. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, and he will appear, then you will also appear with him in glory. To close out, I want to share this, this, this kind of second part of this. A life driven by mercy leads to a renewal of the mind. So the Bible doesn't say, go transform your mind. That's what every book at Barnes & Noble will tell you. Like, you know, Christian self-help. Go change yourself, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you can't change yourself, so be transformed by the Spirit. It's a passive imperative when you look at the Greek kind of structure of it. So, which means this, when we live in light of God's mercy with an open heart toward God, the Holy Spirit is going to renew your mind. It is the trajectory you're on. It may not renew as fast as you want it to, but God will renew your mind because he will carry on this salvation project in you to completion, as Philippians 1 says. So our role then is to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul writes in other places. So how do we keep in step with the Spirit so that we can have these renewed minds in light of his mercy? We have to stay in the knowledge of God to set our mind on things above. Now, how do we do that? We have to set our mind on his word. The word of God leads us to repentance, right? And repentance involves both taking off and putting on things. That's what repentance is. It's not just taking off things and leaving things in our hearts, right? There's this whole aspect that we talked about that the taking off is a mortification of the flesh. It's, it's when we see something worldly in us and we say, I can no longer be associated with that. I have to disentangle myself from that because I'll never be who God created me to be if I let that live in my heart. But it's also this putting on, this embracing of the spirit. And church, when we focus on what he's called us to focus on, we won't be able to help but have a renewing mind. When we're released from the control of the world on our mind, we're freed up to think about the elements of life that are of lasting importance. Now, the Holy Spirit invites us to test that which is before us. What is it right now that you need to test to see if it's from God? Is it a relationship? A relationship that maybe is just off the rails and it's inappropriate, shouldn't be there in your life. You, you got to separate yourself from that relationship. It's unholy. It doesn't please in God. It has the appearance of evil on it, right? Is it a habit? Is it something that's just kind of a guilty pleasure of yours and you just kind of let it live in there, but it leads you to worldliness when you look at what it's associated with? Is it an attitude? Is it just a posture that doesn't lead from a place of mercy? Is it a posture? Church, because of the gospel, the greatest thing that we can do is offer ourselves to God. Now, Christian, you're, you're freed up 
to die to these smaller stories that end with yourself instead of Jesus as the greatest hope in the world and come to him. The renewal of our minds is yet another way to describe the journey that we're all on as Christians. We've got much to learn, we've got much to unlearn along the way, but the beauty is that God in his mercy has known it all along about you. So therefore we can relax into his care and let the spirit lead us as we pursue this life of mercy. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.